Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Matthew Vincent. Sadly, this is our final episode, so I'd like to thank everyone who has listened and contributed over the years. If you'd like to keep up with our all-year reporting on banking and finance, we recommend you try our daily news briefing and our fortnightly show, Behind the Money. We'll be publishing a series of taster episodes of Behind the Money on this channel in the coming weeks so that you can give it a try. In the first episode, we'll be assessing the outcome of the long-running legal battle between the UK's serious fraud office and Barclays over the controversial funding that the bank received from Qatar at the height of the financial crisis. Our correspondents Caroline Binham and Jane Croft will tell the story, featuring audio from the trial, and offer their analysis on what the verdicts mean. But right now, in this episode of Banking Weekly, coronavirus and an oil price war. How have banks been affected and what are they doing? Royal Bank of Scotland, when will it be business as usual for the state-supported lender? And Bob Diamond and Rich Ritchie reunited. What are the former Barclays pair trying to do at Panmure Gordon? Joining me in the studio to discuss all of this is my FT colleague Stephen Morris, and we'll have Laura Noonan joining us from New York. Later on, we'll also be hearing from our special guest, RBS Chief Financial Officer Katie Murray, talking to Nick McGaw. So let's start with a market chaos caused by the coronavirus outbreak and a new oil price war. On Monday, global share prices plunged amid chaotic trading and investors sought refuge in government bonds after a crash in the price of oil hit markets that were already reeling from the impact of coronavirus. Wall Street's S&P 500 index fell 7% shortly after the opening bell, which triggered a circuit breaker meant to curb panic selling. This followed similar drops in Europe. London's FTSE 100 was down by 6%. Markets rebounded on Tuesday, but investors remain worried by Saudi Arabia's weekend decision to launch an oil price war, which sent the price of crude falling by as much as 30%. Meanwhile, coronavirus concerns have resulted in Italy placing travel restrictions on the entire population and suspending mortgage repayments. Bank stocks have been among the hardest hit, as investors considered the impact of tumbling interest rates on profitability. Shares in JP Morgan, Bank of America and Citigroup all dropped 10% on Monday, and those in Socgen, Deutsche Bank and Unicredit declined by even greater margins. So, Stephen, what is it that bank shareholders are so worried about now? Well, remember, bank shareholders have had a pretty torrid few years as it is already with ultra-low or negative interest rates, um, a lack of revenue um, from investment banking as Wall Street becomes increasingly dominant over banks on this side of the Atlantic. Then they were hit by the economic slowdown 
impact of the coronavirus. And now on top of that, they have an oil price war driving prices down to around you know, the lowest seen since 2016. So we've seen big double digit falls at French banks, Dutch banks, Nordic banks, the ones with the largest exposure to the energy sector, specifically oil and gas. The ones that jumped out yesterday were DBS, one of the largest Nordic banks that has very big exposure to oil and shipping, but also Socgen in France and Natixis, both of whom have um, larger um, exposures to energy than some of the others in proportion to their balance sheet. But also because Natixis owns a favorite subject of the FT, H2O, which is a 30 billion fund manager that uh, specializes in liquid bonds uh, and um, took big write downs at the end of last year because of its exposure to the natural gas industry. That was been really badly hit with Natixis shares falling almost 19% yesterday. So we're seeing a sector almost already under siege be hit by another two, not quite black swan, but two unexpected events. One, a potential pandemic and the other a somewhat unexpected oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. So is the fear that, that banks are going to see widespread default? Well, exactly, yeah. If you're an investor looking at a bank, you're, you're seeing potential interest rate cuts again. We've already had one in the US. There could be more narrowing margins on sort of more vanilla lending. Then you also have um, slowdown in, in deals and M&A, uh, especially cross-border on virus fears and also with company valuations fluctuating so rapidly, that could also have a knock-on impact. And then you're looking at both investment banking, commercial banking, and wealth management loans. If they're collateralized, your bank's asking for more clients to put up more capital to support margin lending, for example, in wealth management. And then if you look at the bog standard ones, you know, over-leverage private equity deals going bad as, as valuations um, drop and as um, you know, markets whipsaw, throwing all of the base rates that they're, they're based on out of sync. And uh, have we seen any collateral issues as yet? Or is that just a concern for if things get worse? Well, a lot of these contracts are private, so we haven't seen any high profile ones yet. And in fact, there was a huge deal in the insurance sector yesterday. So that shows things can still be done. But um, certainly private bankers we speak to say that they are having to go back to their clients and ask for more collateral against margin loans already. And we'd be looking to report out on any high profile failings of those. Indeed. And uh, I mean, Laura, you've been taking a very close look at just the day-to-day difficulties that banks have been facing because of the coronavirus disruption. That's before we even had the um, oil price war break out. What have banks been trying to do? So the big challenges for banks is that they could face a situation where completely out of their control, they have to evacuate their main buildings or very few people can get to those. That could occur because of an actual coronavirus case in one of their employees or also because a city or a building decides that people can't come into work in the morning. Banks have traditionally planned for this using disaster recovery centres. Those are typically buildings out of town that banks can go to in the event of terrorism or floods or fire or something that makes their main buildings inaccessible. The problem with that is you still have a lot of people together in these disaster recovery centres. That doesn't necessarily fix the problem from a coronavirus perspective. So what banks are now looking at is 
what if they have to disperse people a lot more widely than just across one or two DRCs? So they're looking at how could their people work from home? That's possible for some activities, like it's relatively easy for investment bankers, for clerical people, for HR people, for finance, all those functions can do it. Where it gets challenging is for people who trade, because in most jurisdictions, there are rules around trading and you must be supervised, you must be monitored. There are compliance checks that must be done physically. And there's also issues like you have to be able to receive securities. So you need a lot of accommodations for that. And also the technology issues, the bandwidth demanded by trading is pretty high because every second matters. And as we all know, when we log on from home, we're not as fast as when we log on from the office. If I'm a few seconds slower, it doesn't really matter. If I'm a trader and I'm half a second slower, it actually can, can matter quite a bit. So there's a number of logistical and regulatory issues banks have to address from a trading perspective in particular that they've been looking very hard at for the last few weeks. And how far have they been getting? Um, let's take the let's take the regulatory issues first of all. Has there been any indication that regulators are willing to show some uh, flexibility or leniency in in some of these areas? So the noise of some of the regulators have been reassuring, but not explicitly so. So they all recognise that. I mean, as one person put it to me, it's not like if the choice is have some traders who aren't monitored as strictly as they would be during normal practice or have the financial markets shut down. Clearly, everyone's bias is towards, okay, we'll have to relax some of these rules temporarily. What the banks, what the regulators haven't said at this stage is they haven't given the specific kind of relief that some banks would like to see, i.e. saying, okay, if you can't record, that's okay. So what they're saying is banks should come and talk to them about any specific issues they have. And they're also both here and in Europe, very much encouraging banks to check everything works, to check that there are people who can theoretically work from home, can literally work from home. So banks are trying like days where they send whole teams to work from home just to see does it actually work. Then on the retail banking side, regulators are also encouraging banks to be ready to deal with that end of things. If they have to shut a lot of branches, can everything be done online? Can their systems handle everyone banking online and no one coming into the branch. So regulators are very much asking banks to be, to be prepared. But I guess what they don't want to do is have this open the floodgates for a mass rolling back of some of the compliance stuff, because the compliance stuff was all put in place for reasons. And I think they would be concerned about setting a precedent if they were to say, OK, we're going to suspend all these rules and just allow something very pragmatic to take place. So it's a pretty delicate balancing act for them. Certainly is, and just lastly, in terms of the the tech challenges that you alluded to, it sounds as if some banks have been at least testing, uh, if not going to sort of full rollout. Has that been the case in the past few days? Yeah, banks have been testing, and they haven't been testing some of the trading functions because they're not legally allowed to at this point. But they've been testing other things. They've been testing their DRCs, or as someone said, like we wanted to make sure that we could find our DRC. Like people don't go to these places very often. They're effectively these empty buildings on the outskirts of cities. So they've been checking that everything works there. They've been putting some teams in the DRCs to test stuff for work from home preparations. Some of them have been installing extra screens in traders' homes because traders, if you've ever been to a trading floor, they have these beautiful screens, like eight of them, so that they can watch all the markets moving at the same time, which is especially important now when there are so many fast moving markets. So what some banks are doing is actually setting up these trading screen environments in traders' homes so that if they can work from home, they will have access to as close to as possible the right infrastructure. Banks would like to be able to secure preferential broadband, but apparently it's not really possible. And 
no one quite knows how broadband is going to play out if we have not just the financial sector, but if we have a lot of the professional sector suddenly working from home. Everyone's going to want to pay for priority access to broadband and realistically, everyone's just going to end up with slower broadband. Yes, that's uh, that's going to be the next challenge uh, if things escalate uh, for now. Laura, though, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, guys. Now, Royal Bank of Scotland, as an almost exclusively retail and small business focused lender, but one that's still part owned by the UK government, is affected in several other ways by coronavirus. It must ensure that its customers have access to cash and enough liquidity to meet their working capital needs. It's already pledged to defer mortgage and loan repayments for up to three months for customers impacted by the coronavirus outbreak. It must keep its customer-facing staff safe and it must hope that stock markets can recover at some point so the government can sell its stake in the bank at a decent price, thus returning RBS to private ownership. It's a tall order on top of cost-cutting and implementing a new strategic plan under new boss Alison Rose. But Chief Financial Officer Katie Murray thinks the bank is up to it and a few days ago she spoke to the FT's retail banking correspondent Nick McGall. So coronavirus and preparations for it and measures to deal with it have been on everyone's minds this week. What have you guys been doing? You know, like I think like all firms, we look at it from two different angles. What do we need to do to make sure that our, our staff are safe and they're looked after and they're comfortable and they understand what kind of restrictions we might put on, on, on travel, but also really working with our customers um, to sort of make sure that they were able to meet their demands. You know, some of them may have concerns around around working capital or actually can we keep branches and things open to just make sure that that's kind of settled. I think what's really interesting is we did so much preparation in the last year um, around Brexit and making sure that working capital facilities were there, that funding was available, and to make sure that our relationship managers were really well informed, that if people had liquidity issues, how we would deal with them. It almost feels at the moment that we're certainly, we feel very comfortable with what we need to do to help our customers going through. At your results last month, uh, your chair and CEO both sounded fairly confident about the kind of outlook for the future of the government's plans to cut its majority shareholding in the bank. But as we just discussed, there's been some fairly dramatic developments since. I mean, what what does all of this mean for RBS's position and the route back to privatisation? You know, I think as we, we look at it, the confidence they would have had is that any of us can look to see that actually, you know, with the Tory uh, government majority that they got, they've got a period of kind of political stability. And so that's helpful in terms of the government being able to be in a position that they can they can do the transaction. They've always been very open in their own budgets that there's something that they, they did foresee happening. And we don't think that position has changed. The reality is, of course, that coronavirus is, is taking what I hope would be a short term kind of dip in the share price and will seek to recover. So it would probably take them a little bit longer than than, than might have been in, intended. But certainly we would see that there's a, there's a, a kind of relatively clear path just in terms of political stability to still making that transaction happen. So in terms of the strategic plan, making sure that we're there for customers, that as a bank, we're working in a very purposeful manner. You know, we talked a lot about the, the kind of three sort of lenses of our of that purpose, whether it be in terms of increasing enterprise, so working with entrepreneurs. And I spent um, time last week out of one of our accelerator hubs, and it's a really exciting place to be. So you've got a lot of young entrepreneurs coming in. And also today, you've also got more business banking and SME customers saying, actually, I can see that that's something the bank's doing really well. To help businesses grow. So it really is making sure that as the kind of largest corporate bank that we're really focusing on how do we deliver that entrepreneurship. Along with our um, ambitions as well around, around climate, I think, you know, 
this as all the things that have been happening in the climate in the in the last few weeks it just makes it more and more impor- important that as a bank we're really part of that transition of the economy and that's what we're very focused on um at, at this stage to make sure that we're doing the work we need to do to continue to be the bank the bank that we want to become that was Katie Murray CFO of Royal Bank of Scotland talking to our colleague Nick McGaw and finally today Barclays or rather two Barclays old boys at London broker Panyol Gordon Former Barclays boss Bob Diamond has appointed his flamboyant former right-hand man, Rich Ritchie, as chief executive of Panyol Gordon, the loss-making UK stockbroker that Mr Diamond's company bought two years ago. As my colleague Stephen Morris put it, Mr Ritchie's recruitment by his former boss represents a crisis-era reunion for the pair of ostentatious American investment bankers. Although the reunion may not be happening this week, as the racehorse-owning Mr Ritchie is very likely to be at or watching the Cheltenham Festival in his trademark bright tweed suit, trilby and dark glasses. He's even named one of his racehorses Fat Cat in the Hat. Back in the day, Mr Ritchie was a key lieutenant of Mr Diamond at the old Barclays Capital business, which he ran with Jerry Delmissier. He stepped down in 2013 in the wake of the £290 million LIBOR rigging fine. Back in the old days, they were known as the Three Musketeers. So the question is, what are the Two Musketeers now up to? Stephen, you uh, were looking at the news that we had a few days ago about Mr Ritchie's reunion with Mr Diamond. What does Bob want Rich to help him with? Well, yes. I mean, when you see a story uh, drop into your lap like this, you know it's going to get a lot of attention purely because of the people involved. Basically, Bob Diamond has bought a small UK stockbroker in addition to all the banks he owns across Africa under his Atlas Mara and Atlas Merchant investment empire. But things haven't been going very well at Pamuel Gordon. They made a double-digit millions pound loss last year, and their CEO, amusingly called Mr. Axe, uh, has been axed so that Rich Ritchie can be brought in, who, of course, you mentioned is Bob Diamond's old mucker from Barclays Capital days. Their first duty will be to try and make a profit, which obviously the bank didn't do in its most recent accounts. And in order to do this, it's trying to change Pam Muir Gordon into more of a boutique merchant investment bank, providing M&A advice and some more structured deals, rather from just the more traditional stockbroking services of trading and providing research, which is bundled. Now, people aware of the finance industry will remember there are a new set of rules called MIFID II, which bans the bundling of free research with trading commission fees. So you have to charge separately for the two these days, which is really affecting the stockbroker's business model, hence the change to more of an old City of London merchant banking approach to things. Rich Ritchie is obviously a high-profile figure. He brings with him presumably a decent client list and certainly a lot of trust for, for Mr. Diamond. But, you know, when things aren't going particularly well, people tend to bring in their most trusted uh, consiglieres, don't they, to try and get things done. No, oh, certainly. Yeah. And it sounds as if what Pamela Gordon is seeking to move into is very much Rich Ritchie's area of uh, expertise and mm. where his reputation was made. Yes. And what they're betting is that a lot of banks are going to be exiting this type of space, you know, cutting back their investment banking and advisory services, slashing their research teams after MIFID, and that they can pick up a lot of this business um, that kind of is dropping out by default of the more traditional listed banks. So whether or not they'll be successful will take a few years to find out. 
but they've certainly been spending enough to try and make a success of it. So um, Bob Diamond has a lot riding on this venture in the UK. Um, his Atlas Mara African banking group is not doing particularly well. There's been trading down since it was created. So um, if he's uh, going to get this multi-pronged approach to work, he has to start showing some profits on the, on the bottom line. And is it likely to be a fairly colourful journey? I mean, Mr. Ritchie is a high-profile character, as racegoers will be well aware. Exactly. One of the stories about him was that he was banned during his departure from Barclays after selling 17 million of his Barclays shares. He wasn't allowed to go to Cheltenham, where, as you correctly pointed out, he probably is today. So rumour has it he um, stayed in his hotel room in Cheltenham, still dressed up to the nines, chatting with all his mates there. So, um, yeah, it promises to be uh, certainly a more eye-catching time for Pamuel Gordon, especially since you know he'll be there in his bright suits and his uh, trilby and sunglasses wherever he goes. But, you know, he was a, a successful banker in his own right, so we shouldn't denigrate his actual talents. Oh, clearly. Uh, absolutely. And uh, do we know how much he's being paid? Is he still going to have to buy lottery tickets as he was once photographed doing? Well, he won't be paid $44 million, as he was famously in 2010 at Barclays. But I imagine um, him and his old boss will have worked out a mutually agreeable compensation package. I dare say it's uh, entirely agreeable to, to all parties, Stephen. Thank you very much uh, indeed for that. And that's all for this week. And that's all from Banking Weekly. So my thanks to Stephen Morris, to Laura Noonan and Nick McGaw and our special guest this week, Katie Murray of the Royal Bank of Scotland. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banks. And from next week, Look out for episodes of our podcast, Behind the Money. Banking Weekly was produced this week by Andrew Georgiadis and Breen Turner. <laughs>